Welcome to the 6AM Run Podcast. My name is Mark Paisant. I'm an avid runner, a certified personal trainer, a 6AM Run ambassador, and host of the show. Be sure to head over to the website, 6AMRun.com, to sign up today to get 20% off of your first order. Now, let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the 6AM Run Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Paisant. As always, it is great to have you a part of the show. We have a really good show for you today. We have Brian Yates on, and I'm going to let him introduce himself in a second. And by the way, if you if hard time remembering his name, Yates starts with a Y. Brian is spelled with a Y. One of my favorite spellings as a mark with a C understands that little difference in the spelling. So as always, this show is brought to you by 6AM Run and 6AMRun.com. Head over to that website to sign up to get 20% off of your first order. Now, I like to tell people this all the time. You probably heard me say it even though the show has run in the title, we don't always have to talk about running. Actually, you know, a lot of the time, I understand that people listen to this show when they're on runs, and I'm sure runners don't want to just listen to runners all the time. Um, I could do that. It probably wouldn't last that long, but I digress. Brian, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Why don't you go just introduce yourself for our audience? Thanks for having me, Mark, with a C. Uh, first of all, I got to say the pressure's on. You've already announced that this is going to be a good show. So uh, I'm just going to center my chi here for a moment <laughs> and go with it. Uh, hi, I'm Brian Yates, and uh, I work as a performance and leadership coach. And I work primarily with, with uh, business owners and business professionals in the creative field who uh, – who are probably at a point in their career where they're either trying to level up or maybe level out, but it's been a long journey just to, to get to this point in my career as well. So, and as far as, you know, as, as running goes, I, I tend to think that running's for fugitives, but that's really okay. Actually, that's not true. I do a little bit of trail running. I mean, I primarily come at this from the sport of having been a, uh, an amateur competitive endurance cyclist. So, you know, I'm the guy who wears the funny clothes and uh, and does things on two wheels. So that's my background, but it's a long journey to get here, and and we can certainly talk about that along the way. Well, let's. I mean, let's kind of talk about that journey. You say you work with in regard to performance and leadership, and and before I guess before we start about the journey, like I think a lot, especially nowadays, people kind of confuse that word leadership with boss or leadership with know-it-all or leadership with you have to do what I say. When you look (laughs) at leadership, like what does your brain tell you about leadership? What is some of the things you see that, that people may get wrong about it? Yeah, I think that people 
That's funny. I, I work with a lot of managers. And when I bring up this idea of leadership coaching, like, well, I'm not a leader because I think part of it is that they get, <clears throat> pardon me, they get squeezed between people who they're managing and from upward pressure. And then there's downward pressure from executives and shareholders, right? And so they tend to feel sandwiched between those worlds and have a hard time seeing themselves as quote unquote leaders. And as far as leadership goes, I mean, I sort of think of self-leadership really, like how we carry ourselves and what is the mark we're leaving on those around us, right? And how are we, how are we presenting ourselves and not just from a presentation, smoke and mirrors layer, but like what's coming from the inside out. And I think a lot of that for me is just having been, has been informed by having been a business owner, but also an endurance athlete. And you know, the things that we learn when we're out there on the trails or when we're out there on the roads of how we just manage in day-to-day -day life, right? And so, you know, I think people can often mistake the idea of leadership as well, of like, I gotta hold it all together, I gotta hold it all together. And and I'm not really a big, I gotta hold it all together for everyone to see kind of guy anymore. I've certainly grown out of that. But for me, it's that how do we carry ourselves and how do we want to connect with people? So it's almost kind of a, what is my self-leadership, right? How, how am I holding myself in the world and how am I holding myself responsible and accountable? That's, I think, what it comes down to for me. And I think, I think that's great because, you know, a, a lot of people, you mentioned this before, a lot of people don't realize whether it's purposefully or not that they're, someone is following their lead. Someone is looking what they're at, what they're doing. I think sports and leadership is such a great combination because you don't get a chance. At least let me back up. Good leaders, great leaders even don't get a chance to not put in the work but then expect others to. And I think sometimes in other places, you may get the opportunity, but in sports, you, you really, especially team sports, you don't have the opportunity. Great leaders don't have the opportunity to do that. But I want, but I would love your, your kind of, your thoughts on the fact that in those situations where leaders just don't have it, they just don't have it. I believe, and I believe you believe that it's up to them to express that, to say, sometimes I don't have it. That's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think first of all, you know, I listened to one of your other podcasts and your guest and you were having a beautiful conversation about the idea of the servant leader. Right. And, and for me, my evolution has been to really look at things and how am I being of service, right? And you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right that sometimes we have to be willing to say, I just don't have this today. And that we simply can't have it, have it all the time. And I've tried to be that guy. I mean, I once had a job for, um, a company that we all know that is represented by a certain rodent as its logo in the entertainment business. And, and the joke was, don't bother coming in on Sunday if you weren't here on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine, you know, you, you can imagine the level of, of how it has to appear that you're holding it together all the time. And I think as a kid, you know, I, I, because of the way things were for me growing up and the way I internalized things, I kind of 
had this feeling my survival mechanism was hypervigilance and how do I hold things together? And I carried that with me for a long time and I used all kinds of things to medicate that. I mean, I, you've probably read that, you know, I, I'm an alcoholic in recovery and that was certainly one of the mechanisms that I used. And at some point, you know, that compartmentalization and that holding it together just cracks. It's, it's absolutely impossible, at least in my case. And so then what do you do? And I think that's where, for those leaders who just don't have it, there's, they have to be willing to say, today's not my day, and I'm going to retreat for a little bit, and I'm going to nurture. The, here's the thing that has to be nourished, and here's the thing that has to be nurtured. And <clears throat> your runners are going to understand this particularly, right? And any of your endurance athletes that who do this actively is that what's an interval, right? It's a period of intensity, and it's a period of recovery. But it's not just intensity, right? It's not just intensity all the time. The recovery part is absolutely critical. And that's, in fact, where you've had the overcompensation in the interval. And then in the recovery is where the magic actually happens. That's where the growth and adaptation actually happens. And so for general fitness enthusiasts, you know, a lot of people, I used to own a spin studio and a lot of people would come in like, I want to be on, 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 on. It's like, you, you can't. Your body's not going to let that. There's no, there's no bioenergetic system that's going to allow you to do that. At some point, everything's going to come crumbling down. So, yeah, I think to answer that question the long way around is we got to give ourselves the grace to recover. And that's what I think a great, great leader does is that they're not holding people to full gas all the time, which is virtually impossible. And I, I think that is... So poignant because even if we look at the human body, the you know anybody who starts a weight program, the muscles aren't built in the gym; they're built in recovery during sleep when the muscles are rebuilding themselves and, and getting stronger and bigger. And I think if we look at just something as simple as that, we can bring the human psyche into that, and even relationships, you know, the same thing. So, but you mentioned it, and and I don't want to skip over this at all, like. Please talk about, and, and the, I want you to talk about the the early parts of, of your life because I know what that internalization feels like. I know what it looks like. I didn't know until I was an adult that I, that I was doing it. I didn't know that me holding it together for either myself or for others was going to do damage in the future or cause trauma. And, um, and you had mentioned that this, you know, because of possibly because of this there, you know, alcohol became a part of a big part of your life, but kind of talk about those things that made you, I don't want to say made you internalize it, made you feel like you had to internalize the things that you were going through. Yeah. I was a pretty sensitive, anxious kid. I think like a lot of people were and, and I came from a very loving home, but I also came, my, my parents were incredibly young when they had me. And I think about this a lot, right? I think about the, a lot of parents had us when they were, t when they were basically kids. And I try and think about what, what did I know when I was 20, 21, 22? I didn't know anything, right? And I think about this idea of what, I don't have kids now, but if I'd had, what would, what would I have known? And so I think as a kid, I grew up a bit in a loving home, but I was anxious and I was always waiting for some shoe to drop. Right. <laughs> and 
I was always waiting for what's going to happen, what's going to go on, what's going to, what's, what's happening next. And since I was a kid in the seventies and eighties, so I was also a latchkey kid. So there was a lot of, you know, Brian going off and go find your own way, dude, (laughs) which wasn't always true. And I think, but that doesn't matter, right? I think what matters is how we internalize it and the feelings that we have. And there's no, you know, we can have people in our lives say, well, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all, but it doesn't really matter, right? Our feelings have weight and our emotional experiences have this weight. And so, you know, I think sometime around 13 or 14, I started to abandon that, that emotionalism. And, you know, I talk about this with my therapist all the time, for God's sake. So I put, you know, I put the super rational hat on. I said, that's it, man. That's it. I'm, I'm locking down, right? I'm locking down and I'm going to be as cool and rational as possible. And I'm not going to let you see what's going on. And, you know, I used to have people tell me in jobs, like, you're inscrutable. And I thought that was great. That was so great. And it's absolutely not. It, it is absolutely, it's a, it may be a fine poker face, but you can't carry that all the time because you know, when you're compartmentalizing the way that I was, and it sounds in some ways like you've alluded to that in yourself, is that those walls get mighty thin. And there's only so much weight for so long that we can pack into that. And, you know, as a fellow endurance guy, the things that we start to pride ourselves on is we overwork our resilience. We overwork our strength. We overwork our, our suffering, right? I talk about this with, with some of the guys and men and women that I coach. It's like, I got great endurance. I'm like, yeah, you do. But at some point, we got to work at the other stuff that's going on in there as well mm-hmm. because we're just pushing it away. So, uh, so you know, alcohol became a way for me to, to medicate. And first, it was fun, and then it became not fun. And, and, and workaholism, I think that achievement culture, like going for achievement after achievement and creating these impossible standards. Right. And, and, and these things that we pack into our identities sure have a lot of weight to them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what overworked muscles don't get stronger and they break, they break. And, and this is true of what we were just talking about with intervals and the need for recovery. And at some point, the higher purpose, the higher power, the universe, whatever that thing is, says, stop. It's, you have to stop. And so for me, it was, you know, it's been uh, a couple of experiences with sobriety and recovery, some half steps in there. And uh, it has been uh, a process of unpacking what that identity was and what I was doing to myself, both in in substance uh, abuse, but also emotional insobriety. There's sort of two kinds of sobriety that we talk about. One is physical and the other is an emotional. And once the physical part has been at least addressed, then it's what's going on behind that. And, uh, you know, as I'm, I think that I'm also finding that this is not uncommon for people going through midlife anyways, is that that midlife crisis is actually real. And part of that is recovering from what it is we've done to our identity and kind of figuring out what does this all mean and getting comfortable with the idea of saying, I don't know. 
Those are powerful words. Those are powerful words, and I, I don't think enough people not only say it enough, but n- they don't know the the actual strength of those words. And um, one, first of all, thank you so much for for opening up, being vulnerable like that, because I, I appreciate that, and I think that's that allows other people to kind of see, hey, okay, someone understands, someone has empathy for for my plight. So so thank you for that. God, you know, I just, and, yeah, that's so power. I'm sorry, I don't mean to trade. I just think that the saying, I don't know, or, or if we can give people like as coaches, you know, I see in your email, just as, as coaches and just fellow humans, if we can give people the space to say, I'm afraid or yes, I don't know or whatever, or to, to just say, I'm in the dark, whatever it is, those three powerful words is just a, we give people the space to actually grow. And I, I think at the same time, it, 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 people don't understand, like, it takes a lot of pressure off of you too. Cause we're the ones that a lot of times we're the ones that put pressure on ourselves. And, and even I, you know, thinking back to one of the first jobs I had while I was in high school and college, and it was just a a retail worker at a, a, a party goods store. And, and I hated when people asked me where things were when I first started, I, <laughs> I felt embarrassed. I felt embarrassed that it's my, Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I'll, and I would just, I'm sure I made stuff up before and I just didn't want, I thought me not knowing was worse than me telling a complete lie, which is absolutely not the case, but, uh, but a lot, and I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are like, yeah, like, yeah, oh yeah, that, uh, and that's, and I think that, that it, I don't know if this is me, but every time I'm in the store, I'm like, I will just find what I need to find for the next half an hour before I ask anyone, you know, I'll take my phone out and Google this specific store. Where is this specific item before I, add, and they're there to help us. And it's, it's that, it's, that's, that's, that's so crazy. What our, what we do to ourselves, literally what we do ourselves. But a lot of the work you're doing now, you mentioned this before the show is on inner fitness. Yeah. Like we, we talk a lot about, um, especially when you think of the word coach, you think a lot about physical fitness. Okay, we have a running coach. We're going to help you with your strides, your 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 foot strikes, your your cadence. If you have a weight coach or a fitness coach, we're going to get you in with the right reps, the right, you know, we're going to measure things. But we don't really hear a lot about inner fitness. So, and I kind of want you to, to, to bring it into your whole journey because this is something that you're working on now but have been working on for a while. What When, when you say inner fitness one what does that mean and how does one kind of work on it yeah um that's a really great question and maybe it will help if i kind of roll back a little bit in my professional history and how i got to this so i i went to grad i was originally planning to be a history professor at some point i was going to drag my wife off to podunk you wherever it was uh, but that actually didn't happen. And I, but I did get a job out of graduate school of working with Holocaust survivors and listening to their testimonies, right? <laughs> and cataloging their testimonies. And that's when I got, I mean, I had been a cyclist before that, but that's when I got really interested in the idea of endurance and endurance fitness and what does it take? And 
and that kind of Viktor Frankl man search for meaning of how do we, how do I respond to situations and not get taken over by my circumstances? And then mentioned that I work for another company, but then I, I, I had, I, I was a consultant for a while, but then I got into, then I got into, uh, fitness, right? And opened some, some fitness studios in the Los Angeles area. And along the way I was doing, getting back into bike racing and coaching cyclists, but I was also personal training people through this, through this studio. And I started to realize that I was getting these men and women at a certain age who were coming in and they were at a certain point in their career, maybe late thirties or early forties, or they were popping their head up and they're going like, what's going on in my life? What's what I, I, I think I want to get fit. I think fitness is what I'm missing in my life. Mm-hmm. And we'd end up spending 20 minutes of every single session talking about all of the ancillary stuff, all of the, the, the stuff that was impacting them and creating that kind of that emotional weight and that emotional those emotional bruises and working through that. And I started to realize that, that just as, you know, when we're physical training someone or f- training someone's fitness, you build a foundation by building strength, endurance, and range of motion. And then we start to add things on there like bioenergetic systems. How do we coach someone to run faster or run hotter or to back it off? Or how do we coach more people to be more agile? And I thought all these same terms applied to our emotional and mental world, right? That we can find a range of motion in, in our emotional life. You know, some people have a range of emotion that can be kind of narrow, right? And it's like, I live and get pulled around by their emotions or some, or, or for me, like for me growing up, my range of emotions was pretty narrow. I tried to stay right in the middle because I didn't want to feel the hard stuff, right? I was terrified of the highs and lows, even though I was experiencing them internally. And so uh, that, so what, as I worked with more and more of those people and I was having more and more of those conversations with both the executive cyclists I was working with and the, personal fitness folks is that there's really a place to help people's performance and how they interact with others and how they talk to themselves and how they interact with themselves. And to take all these principles that we know as athletes or fitness professionals and apply it to how they're just moving through their day-to-day life. And so that for me is, is what the inner fitness is. And that inner fitness is not shutting down emotions, but it's accepting. It's learning how to uh, accept and and not get stuck in one place too long, but treat them appropriately and give them the due and the respect and the care that they need. And I think even in my own my own journey, <clears throat> one of the interesting things that's happened is. I don't put a lot of weight on personality tests, but if anyone's ever taken the Myers-Briggs test, I always came back as an INTJ, which was uh, you know the introvert, not sensing, but intuitive and thinking and judgmental, right? And as a few years ago, when I needed to really have a second surrender into my sobriety and really look deeply at all these things that I'd been carrying around, 
you know, it not only took that recovery work, but it also took going to a therapist. And in the process, that T shifted to a feeling. I was like, where has that been? <laughs> where has that been? And I realized how deeply I'd been locking that down. And going back to this idea of like overworked muscles don't get stronger, they break. Like I had been using that thinking thing to hold everything down. And I was missing out. I was missing out on that vulnerability side. I was missing out on letting myself be seen and letting myself be available, letting myself connect in a more authentic way. I, mean, I had a lot of friends, but it was like, you're going you're gonna to stay over there. You're, you're going to just stay over here and there's some space between us and I'm not letting you in. <laughs> And learning to do that has absolutely, I think, upended my ability to communicate, work, and connect with people on a very different level. So that's a long way of getting to what is that inner fitness for me. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think that affects when you work with people and you see yourself in them? Do you think that that changes any of the work you do? Do you think that kind of a light bulb goes off and you're like, oh, I, I see where this is going? Or do you, I mean, I don't want to say you, you treat everyone the same. I'm sure there's a unique, you know, a difference to every person you coach, every person you work with. But that moment you see that former version of yourself, does something kind of go off in your head? I don't look for a version of myself. In people, that's a really great question. What I look for are those invisible connection points, mm -hmm. or what I look for are the invisible traps that they might be ah, experiencing. Yes. yes. And and it comes out in a word, it comes out in maybe how they carry themselves or their body language when they say a certain thing and I see their arms cross or I see them kind of shrinking and getting smaller in themselves. I kind of look for that. But one of the big changes for me as I've kind of grown up a bit more spiritually on this from say my 30s to my early 50s in that a, I'm willing to say, I don't know, also is an opportunity for me to be infinitely curious. And so I don't know actually opens up the door for us to say, let's explore that. And when we explore that, it allows me, even though I'm talking my, my head off today, I actually do a lot of listening and question asking, and I listen with the intention to understand. And I have to... Like even before coming in today, I've got to, I, I, I had to pause and say, listen with the intention to understand, like, why am I saying a certain thing or why might Mark be saying a certain thing? And so come at it from a curious, a place of curiosity rather than having to know. I think, I think that's great. And, and I, you know, one of the things you mentioned in, in, again, I don't want to turn this about me, but please do. I, <laughs> but the fact that. To, actually, it's actually two things. One, in regard to living in that safe middle ground. And I, and I tell people this all the time, and, and I don't know if there's a way I can, can work myself out of this, or even if I do want to. But even when things are going great in my life, or I'm watching a ball game and my team is up, bit, or whatever it is, my, I never get too high. Never, ever allow myself to get too high. Because I know what the opposite feels like. 
And then on the flip side of it is that even when things are going poorly, badly, terribly, I I do everything I can not to let myself get too low because I know I, I know what that relationship is like. I know the safe space is right in the middle. And I say safe space, in, in my head, the safe space. But a lot of the times it turns into, oh, Mark doesn't care or Mark Mark's not invested. Right. Or And right. it's not that I'm not invested. I just, it's self-preservation. It's sure. absolutely self-preservation. And then another thing. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure, go ahead, yeah. How, how did you come by that, if you're willing to talk about it? Yeah, I, I, I definitely am. And, and I know exactly what happened. And, and when I was, when I was really, not really young, I guess, I mean, I guess, relatively speaking, young, um, when I was in high school or early or middle school, one of the two, my, my grandfather died. And I absolutely like loved this man. And, and we spent all the summers in New Orleans with him. And he was a great man. He, he, he was, he was just a wonderful grandfather. And that was the first time in my life where I really experienced death in my family. That was the first time. I'm sure. I'm sure a cousin or I, I don't know, but that was the first time I went to a funeral, open casket. I saw the body. I remember as a kid, I'm thinking he's gonna wake up. Like he's he's gonna wake up. Like we're why are we here? And um, I did not know how to feel. I'll be totally honest with you. I did not know how to feel. And. From that moment on, I said, uh, and my dad is a very stoic man. It wasn't his father. It was my mother's. He lost both of his parents before I was born. My dad was a stoic man, and I he's still alive this day, and he's my mentor coach. My I look up to this man. He's he's the greatest man on earth. And I see this, so I'm, I'm basically mimicking my father. He's staying strong for my sure. mother. He's staying strong for my sister. He's staying strong for the family. And I'm like, okay, that's what I got to do. Did and you notice during the pandemic how stoicism became all the rage, by the yeah, way? Yeah, it really did. It, it really did. It really did. And I remember when I learned it, it was a vocabulary word in middle school or in high, whatever one it was, freshman year of high school, it was a, it was a, a vocab, vocabulary word. And I, I remember just attaching myself to it and like that's my that's my dad like that's so that's me and and this is really like i don't know how many people know this about me if any but um since then i've you know had to go through the the death of my grandmother i've had to go through the death of my my mother and i i i didn't cry around my family I didn't mourn around my family. And the reason I didn't do it was because what I just mentioned, like I have to be the strong one. My brother is, you know, emotional. My sister, he, he won't say it, but he is. My sister is emotional. Um, and I remember at my mom's wake, I'm sitting there looking at her and I'm just plain face like emotionless like inside i'm burning inside i am i've lost my mother grandmother was the same way and i go and i i cry by myself sure 
because I'm like, I have to make sure everyone else is taken care of. If something pops up, if someone has to ask the family a question, if someone needs this handled, if someone needs a, a, a cool, calm, collected guy, I'm, I'm the person. And so that's, again, I am not the guest this week, everybody. I, I'm sorry, but, um, but yeah, that's, but so I kind of, when you're saying those things, it's like, man, that, that is, that is, that is talking to me. That is, that is, that's cutting me deep because it's like, that's, that's me. That is me. That's been me. Yeah, I, I relate to all of that that you've said, and it's you. You said you were thirteen when you lost your grandfather. I when I lost my grandfather, I, I was thirteen or fourteen, I believe, right? And that's sophomore, sophomore in high school, so fourteen or fifteen, maybe. Okay, so we're you know we're a little out of adolescence at that point, <laughs> but you know hormonal hormonal teenagers with with raging testosterone that we don't know how to deal with. So it's like hide, lock it down. Yeah. And, you know, there's that, that idea of stoicism where I think the way it gets interpreted is, oh, don't show emotion, which isn't necessarily true, but it's more of a prescription for, how, for I think, you know, how we react and not to overreact, not underreact, which is like, you know, stay in that mm-hmm. zone. But, you know, it's funny. It's, it's not funny. It's that I relate very much to what you say about, oh, I don't want you to see me feeling this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I gotta, I gotta be the one who takes care of things. And I think, you know, I, I have a, a I, I facilitate a, a men's group for middle-aged men every couple of Wednesdays called the Inner Circle. And part of the conversation that's come up is the is, is going to be a very natural conversation for middle-aged men about what is masculinity, right? And one of those things that men typically i've at least in in my circles are typically bad at doing is receiving mm-hmm. we don't allow ourselves to receive right that's not that's not masculine it's like give 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 right give oh but don't receive don't <laughs> right. and you know that being able to cry in front of someone is without judge without fear of judgment is a way that we receive except we don't allow ourselves to do that mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true. I'm certainly no expert on like, you know, the, the history of masculinity or whatever, the sociology no, of masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> you're, at, you're, you're a thousand percent right. And I've had, it's so fun. It, it, it's, it's interesting that I've had this conversation maybe uh, four or five times in the last 10 years and all of them have been in the last two months. Like literally, like if, if people understand what I just said, like everyone has, has come now and you know, one of the things that, and we talked about on the show with uh, with other people, is that in this society, and this is not hyperbole. This is not me making a just a statement to get a, a, a opinions on it. But a lot, most of the time, men are judged on what they're giving at the time. It just, it's how it is. Like, it, it, and and have we kind of dug that hole ourselves? Yes. Like, we, I'll I'll take I'll take a lot of the blame on that because. We have been the ones that will, you know, burn the wick at both ends. We've been the ones that will yeah. sacrifice family for more money. We've been the ones to have to do more, 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 more and compete with other men. Like we, we should take a little bit of the blame on that. However, when we talk about receiving, when someone says, you know, the compliments that men get usually on 
is usually about the things that they've obtained. Even if you say, hey, that's a nice suit. That's a nice tie. I just chose it. Like I didn't make it. I didn't, I, I just chose, like that's the thing. And, but you know, a lot of the times when we turn that into appreciation of the person, not just what they have or not just what they did or not like, I appreciate you being there for me. I thank you for speaking. You made, you made a great point. You like when you turned it into receiving in regard to an action that that person is a personality trait, something that they have worked on. Hey, I know that you said the other day or said last year that you wanted to work on this, this, and this, and they're all personality traits. I want to tell you right now, you've done a great job. And not just one-on-one, -on -one. do it in public, do it sure. because I tell you what, the embarrassment that people feel when they are given compliments in public is based solely on the fact that it doesn't happen. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward because it doesn't happen. We don't know right. how to respond. Like right. sometimes you give a man a compliment in public in his thirties and that's the first time that has ever happened. Especially right. if he's never played a sport before. If he's never played yeah. a sport, he's probably never received any, any type of public, you know, compliments. But um, I, I'm glad you're kind of bring that up. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I, I, I was also just going to punctuate that with, especially if maybe they haven't played a sport, but they've only grown up professionally in the corporate environment oh, as yeah. well. Oh, like the expectations... And I, I tell, and oh, I'm, 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 I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Um, I used to think, <laughs> I used to think that um, if you, if you don't give negative feedback to a person in corporate America and professional, you don't need to give positive feedback. I used to think when I first got into, I used to think that I used to think like, if you never get on somebody for being late you don't have to ever commend them for being on time and like me saying it out loud now like i'm again i'm embarrassed to, to say that no feedback but, is good feedback yeah, in mark's exactly, world ex yes exactly and i remember i talked oh my god i talked to a therapist about that a long time ago and i remember i was doing i had gotten to a job where i was killing it i was doing good i was doing better i was in my i was in my element and I said, you know, I don't need my manager to talk to me. I don't need any feedback. I don't, unless I'm doing something wrong. And he's like, let me stop you real quick. So the only time you want your manager to speak to you is when you've messed up or when you have an opportunity to do something better. And I was like, well, wait a second. I'm like, no, no, that sounds terrible. Like every time I pick up the phone, I'm going to be scared. He's going to say something to me. He's like, exactly. Like, don't put that much pressure. If he wants to say good job, accept it. Like, let him do that. And I was like, I never that talk about paradigm shift, like not to talk about like that was a total 180. And uh, I've talked about before where, you know, in that same year, I get this national customer service award and I get to go be flown to California with like 10 other people from the company, 50,000 people in this company. I'm one. And when I talk about awkward and not knowing how to react my boss calls me, tells me this. I get off the phone with him and I call my mother crying. And she's like, what's going on? What's wrong? What's and I really had no idea how to respond to that. My body had no 
just no, it does not compute type things. So, and I, I think, you know, one of the things that you're trying to do, and, and I can hear it a lot in what you're talking about, is just making sure people understand their worth. Making sure people oh. understand that even in the lowest times, even when they think they've messed up, even when they don't know an answer, they're still worthy of someone's patience to find that answer. They're still worthy of someone's grace that they're not supposed to know that answer. But people are still worthy, and I think that's what you're, a lot of the work you try to do is about that. I think there is a lot of that. And I think to take that a step further, not just that someone else, but that that even if I've screwed up, yes, I am still worthy yes. of my own acceptance, yes. right? And it starts with that self-acceptance. And if I guess if I talk about my own process and journey of recovery from saying, you know, going and this is from everything, you know, from the, the, the workaholism, from the alcoholism, from believing that I am this or I am that. It's been kind of a, a recovery, a process of self-acceptance, right? And I can think of sort of two exercises right away that you've brought up to me just in our conversation here that I might work on with someone. And, you know, the next time you go into store, don't pick up your phone, go straight to someone in the vest and oh, with a name badge and say, can you tell me where this is? <laughs> oh, it, it's a, it oh, oh, are you trying to make friends? Like, what are you trying to do here? What do you, I, I mean, you're trying, <laughs> trying to what's alienate? Your agenda? What's your agenda, dude? <laughs> and then I think the other one, and you hit it really, really well. I, I give that embarrassment uh, at praise. Mm. And here's something that I've, I've had to work on strongly with myself. Like I avoided my birthday like the plague. Oh my God. Are you in my head? Right? Are you? Oh my God. And, and people would want to celebrate this. And I had a very important person in my life mm. in, you know, in, in sobriety. And his, he said to me, yeah, it doesn't matter. You're going to say thank you. You're going to accept this and say, thank you. And it's going to hurt and it's going to feel weird and your body's not going to know how to respond, but you're just going to say, thank you. And interestingly, I, that's one of the things that I've worked on with people and it's men and women that I coach men and women pretty evenly, but it's people, you know, will, will automatically cringe at the idea of being thanks. Like, no, drop your shoulders, pull your shoulders back, lift your head up. Take a deep breath and just say thank you and then move on. Yes. <laughs> Get used to it. Mm. And that's the receiving. That's like allowing ourselves to receive. That That is, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the times in our heads, we we surround ourselves with these thoughts that the whole world is is either watching us or looking at what we do next. And if we can stop most of those eyes from ever looking at us thus i'm not gonna tell people my birthday is like i'm not gonna be around for gifts like if we can stop and and I'll, again I'll, I'll turn this on myself so if we can stop the world from looking at us they're not going to see the mistake we're about to make they're not going to see something that we mess up and yeah except yeah. you put yourself out here three times a week in a podcast yes yeah, yeah i, I I, I don't I have no idea what you're talking about, Brian. No idea what you're talking about. But um 
But one well, of, I think yeah. you hit on the paradox. Yeah. You hit on a paradox, which is we're so desperate to be seen in the social media age. And at the same time, we're equally desperate not, not to, to be seen. seen. And we were stuck in the tug of war between those two things. Oh, you noticed I did that? Oh, I had no, I had no idea anybody was watching. Oh, sorry. I, that, that is, this is so embarrassing. This is, uh, you, you saw me hit that shot from 30 feet away and nothing but, oh man, I had no idea. So what, this whole thing, this thing, oh, this, oh, oh no, well, I just, yeah, I just put this on. So, but, uh, one of the things I, I do and, and you've mentioned it, it's, it's a part of your journey and, and you're open talking about, um, and I, 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 I appreciate how you represented your, your journey through alcoholism. You said, I think you said, you didn't say you're recovering alcohol. You said you're an alcoholic in alcoholic in recovery. I believe that's what you said. Mm -hmm. Um, someone out there is listening right now and, and they are, I don't want to say lying to themselves, but they're doing everything to make themselves believe they're not in some sort of downhill spiral. They're a lie of omission is still a lie. Exactly. Exactly. What, and I meant to ask you this earlier, but what was, sure. and, and tell, leave out whatever you want or talk about whatever you want, but I, I just kind of want to know what was that, that point where you said to yourself or someone said to you that you're an alcoholic? Hmm. God, I knew for a long, long time. And, and I think that there's, I, the, it's so easy to lie to ourselves. And I certainly lied to myself for a very long time. And, you know, there were definitely, definitely ebbs and flows, right, for me in, in the progression of my alcoholism. And, certainly times in college and graduate school that were mortifying. <laughs> how did you hide it? Uh, like, so how did the people know? Like, did you? Uh, people, I think people would have known then, except that you can hide. So I went to Arizona State. Mm. So, <laughs> now said, all right, girl, this has been a great show. Thank God. No, <laughs> say no more. <laughs> I, no. I, hate to, I apologize for laughing at that, but I know exactly what is it. I, I throw it out there. You, Laughter is the best medicine. Yes. <laughs> so you can hide that crap in plain sight, mm -hmm. right? And I, I actually say this quite a lot, is that I was hiding in plain sight for much of my life. And, um, and you know, that ebbed. I got married, have a, been married for, for now almost 25 years. And... <clears throat> had a couple of businesses and was struggling with those, I think for all of the same identity reasons that we were talking about. And I was coming at it from an achievement focus rather than a purpose and service focus. And my, my, and I was racing bikes and I, you know, so I was telling myself I had all these things going on. I had all these things going on. And so how could I possibly be alcoholic, right? You can, there's, you can be in both places at once, but you can't be in the in the problem and the solution at the same time. That's impossible. And I want to pause there for a second because you that is so poignant. I want people to understand or hear that again. That you can't sure, be, you can't in, be the in the problem. problem and solution at the same time. That I am, I'm stealing that. 
I'm not only stealing that. Take. I'm I'm gonna glaze that on a plate. That that was that was great. I think more. So I don't think I made it up. I probably stole it from someone else. So. I apologize for cutting you off, but once I heard that, I had no, I had to make sure people heard that. No, so I love a great conversation, and it's a give and take, and uh, and it's a little bit of a tennis match, and that's sort of what I coach a lot of my managers. <laughs> on. So, at any rate, so I think we have this idea of the alcoholic as the person living under the bridge who's given it all away, mm-hmm. right? who has given it all away. And I kind of want to hint on that point as well. And they haven't taken a shower and their, their, their britches are halfway down their butt. Mm. <laughs> but that's not exactly the case. And I think the, 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 the damage is the lie and the conniptions that we go through to convince ourselves, right? I, so I had all these things going on. I'm like, I'm an endurance athlete and I got this stuff going. I got this, this fitness studio and I'm doing, look at how awesome I am. And, And why am I thinking of that first glass of gin that I'm going to have by the time? Why am I already romancing this at 9 a.m. in the morning? Well, I'm not having it at 9 a.m. in the morning, so how could I possibly be an alcoholic? Except the same ritual over and over and over. And I kept hearing for many years, I think, you know, the last three years or so of the, you know, the, the first time I really started my sobriety process was, you know, I'd have these moments where my wife would say, do you think you drink too much? Do you think you have an alcohol problem? Well, if you think you do, you, I, I mm-hmm. probably do. And I couldn't quit. I could do everything else. I could go, I could hop on my bike and ride 100 miles. I could ride 200 miles. I could get up at 5 a.m., 4, 4 a.m., coach a spin class at 5.30 go train, run a business, but I still could not stop the cycle of uh, drinking daily. Could not stop. And and I tell this story quite often. I tell a couple stories quite often, but one was I was in the middle of <clears throat> coming home from like this long hundred mile bike ride with a couple of friends. We were at mile 85 and they we got to a stoplight and they were talking about the recovery meetings they were going to go to later. And my first thought was that sounds like something I could use, but first I'm going to go have some gin. (laughs) And I was like, okay, that's confusing. So, you know, I think at one point you just hear the voice, like we can hear the same thing a hundred times, but on a hundred and first time we might hear it differently. So that was it. That was that time. And then, you know, I I got through the physical sobriety part, but I didn't really, and I could accept, I could accept that I was powerless over alcohol. I couldn't accept all of the other stuff that went with it. And I parked my recovery in neutral. And at some point during the pandemic, I was taking on too much, my identity and everything got too weighty. And I had started to slip in some other areas of my sobriety and I had a guy in my life at one point, my, you know, I, and I was basically lying and I was hiding and I was hiding in plain sight. And it's interesting, even though I wasn't drinking, I'd use some other, I'd use some cannabis and that opened up the rationalization muscle for me. And if I start exercising the rationalization muscle, that's the muscle that gets worked, right? So it doesn't really matter what I, for what I take any medication from the, and when I start medicating from the head up, that rationalization muscle kicks in and the dominoes start to fall. 
and I hadn't drank, but I had used these, you know, I'd use some, some cannabis pills here cause I'm in California. So we do that. <laughs> and, uh, it started, I started changing some behaviors and things that were just not appropriate. I was giving away all the good stuff in my life. And I was in this case of real moral turmoil. And in fact, in fact, you know, I'm a pretty slender guy, but I had just dropped 15 pounds because I was cannibalizing myself from my own torment. And I had a man look at me and I get emotional at this. And he said, are you done yet? And that was it. That was it. I was done. And so then the work begins. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. No, the hiding is the hard part. The hiding, the hiding and the conditions we go through to hide, like the hiding is the hard mm. part and the subterfuge. I mean, the crap I did when I was actively drinking, Mark, like I'd come home and, you know, I'd pour a gin and my wife would go somewhere to the other side of the house and I'd start tiptoeing over to the bar mm. and pour more. Mm. Back. Over to the bar, pour more. And then tiptoe over and pour more. And she'd have no idea. She'd have no idea. Like she just, you know, was the, it was complete, like it was completely unclear that she'd go to bed and a bottle would be empty and I would tiptoe out to the recycling bin and carefully mm. like... And yet I had all this stuff going on. So I was hiding in plain sight. And I think that when we do that in anything, when we do that in anything, it takes an awful lot of work. It takes an awful lot of energy to do that. And I think you as a coach will understand this because and I as a coach, like the, the thing that's become clearer to me lately is that as coaches, and maybe it's thanks to Ted Lasso, but it's like our job is really about redirecting energy in people. Like we see the forest, they're in the trees. Like they got to take the walk in through the trees, but we kind of see where it's going. We see like, ah, oh, your energy's here. Let's put it over here instead. Yeah. If all my energy is going to the hiding, how does that help my performance in anything? I, well, first of all, I want to say thank you for, for sharing that because, um, I think all of us, I think no one can walk this earth and say, we don't know someone who has gone through something and it doesn't have to be alcohol abuse. I tell people all the time, the only thing I've ever been addicted to is, is food. And it was, it, it was, it was bad. Like it was one of those things where I couldn't stop myself. I literally couldn't stop myself. And, and I feel the same way. Like now, um, the only difference is that I, I, I've been through that experience. Do I still want to eat a lot of the stuff? I, I yes, I, I I would love to go to a buffet, and but now I know how that makes me feel the next day, and I'm thinking about that version of myself. Um, yeah, and, you could pre-live that. Hangover. Yes, I, yeah, and and I tell people all the time, like, and I'm not ranking addictions, but alcohol is one of the hardest ones because your body gets used to that. The way the alcohol is burned in your body, the way the sugars, your, your brain locks onto those sugar, like that's one of the hardest things. Um, and, you know, what can you say about recovery? Like what, what changes have you seen mentally and physically in this journey you're on right now? 
It's been for me the way that I've chosen to do my recovery has made how I and my life was getting so small. It was getting down to like this tiny corner of a couch, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> doing the same things over and over. Like on the outside, it looked like, oh, I was doing like, Brian's going here to ride a bike and he's going over there to ride a bike and he's doing this. But really, it was like limited to a very small space. And my life and my self-understanding and my self-acceptance, like I said this before, it's been a journey of self-acceptance, right? And I wish that on everybody. I hope everyone can have a journey of self-acceptance and stop that. Whatever it is we do to ourselves in our thirties and going into through the forties. I, I, I hope that you can find that. And that's what I have today, right? I don't know that I'll have it tomorrow, but I have it today. So, but in some ways my life has be inner life has become far more expansive. I connect on a far deeper level like you know i can't wait to call you after this and have a, have a further conversation like you're my new bestie but um, <laughs> but i think you no know, but we have i can have you know i can allow myself to be seen right and i think that the more we can allow ourselves to be seen which is just what you and i have done right here right we've talked about your relationship to food We've talked about your grandfather and I can feel all of that. I don't have to live it, but I can feel it. Right. And I can say, oh yeah, here's it. And wow, that's what it lights up in me. Oh, that's, oh, here's where we're similar. And we, you know, more than ever, I'm, I'm able to listen for similarities, right? I think in those, in my thirties, I was listening for differences. I was listening for what's my way to get ahead. What's my competitive advantage? What's my next achievement? What is that? And that's a, that's a hard way to go. It's just a hard way to go. And I think it's for me, I've been able to make that shift from do I want to be in a competitive mindset or do I want to be in a collaborative mm. mindset? And I think collaborative means we go much further. You know, this is, it's July, it's Tour de France time, right? So anyone who rides a bike is, is glued to what's going on. And the misconception is it's like one person hitting the end on the own, on their own. But you know, if you're doing 19 stages and they're all 150 miles, you got a team, you got teams that get you there. And I allow myself to be in a team of humans and I get right in the middle, right? Stay in the middle. I don't have to be above. I don't have to be different. I don't have to be unique. I just have to be a part of, and I guess that other part of that recovery is really coming to more of an understanding today that we are all connected. Oh yeah. And I think a great place to kind of go before we, we end this is what you just spoke about in regard to that collaborative work environment versus the competitive. And I think you mentioned this on your site and, and I, I bring it up all the time, people living in the zero sum game that, that doesn't exist, that literally doesn't exist. And yeah. Either I succeed and you don't succeed or vice versa. Like that doesn't that. So, so I would love to, 
Is that kind of a, a paradigm shift you had to go through, or have you always thought of the world as collaborative? Or not? Let me, not the world, but have you always wanted to live in that collaborative environment, or is that something you had to work into? I think I had to. I mean, I, I think intellectually I've seen it, but I don't think that I internalized it emotionally. And for something to work, I don't believe that any of us change our mind. We change our hearts and we hear the message in our mind, but our hearts is where the change is manufactured. And part of, I guess, going back to that, what else is that recovery is that that area that I blocked in my neck where it's like, don't travel down to your heart, don't travel down to your heart. It's like, that's opened up. And so things like I can feel things more when I can feel it, I can understand that's where the growth happens. And I think that intellectually, I felt that on the collaboration. I don't know that I'd actually ever internalized it down to a cellular mitochondrial level. But I do think that 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 energy can can shift in us. I do believe that. And we start putting out a little bit more and it starts coming back to us. And and I really don't think in that that I'm out there and, and being all crazy, like aluminum foil hat type guy. But I really believe that's what we put out is what we get back in. Um, it might not be one for yeah. one. It might not be one for one. But... Um, I tell you right now, and I see you putting a lot of that positive energy out there right now. Um, and, and everybody again, talking to Brian Yates and, and just let you know how he describes himself or the things he does. He, you know, he turns your fear and hesitation into brave, inspired action. And I think, I think there should be more people in the world like you. How do people find you online and how do people learn more about you and possibly work with you? Gosh, thank you so much for asking that. Can I just roll back to one thing that you of talked course, about? Yes, and then I'll say yes. that. And I think this is really this is really powerful for everyone. This is what we were talking about, how people see us and how we're trying to put things out there so that they see us in a certain way. And I don't remember exactly what the, the context of that particular conversation was, but it, it reminded me of a quote, and I think this is an Eleanor Roosevelt quote. And that quote is for all of us who live in this social media age and who have to go out and do business and the world. What other people think of me is none of my business. So, so I'm going to pose this to you. Like if I, if I, if I think Mark, Mark is an amazing, great person. What is that? What, what, what's your response? I I should have seen this coming too. I really should have seen this coming. I I, I don't even know how to respond. It, to, if I it's none, it's none of my, my business, like, none of your business, it's none of my business. It's none of my business. It's none of my business. But at the, and if someone thinks I'm if someone thinks I'm 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 awful, also none of my business. Right. <laughs> so freeing. So, so uh, people can find me at locomotivecoaching.com. There is no e in locomotive. That's a holdover from. Uh, when my business was more about getting people fast on bikes. And I sort of love that old like Soviet realism. <laughs> and, and so it's locomotive, no E locomotive coaching.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Brian with a Y Yates. Love it when people connect with me there. Um, you know, you can sign up for my newsletter, which I send out like incredibly infrequently at the moment. <laughs> 
And if you just want to come and have like, you know, a 45 minute session with me, by all means, I do it, do it free, go to the website, sign up. I'd love to meet you and love to hear your story. And, you know, like I said, listen with the intention to understand. And uh, I'm infinitely curious about what's going on in your life. And uh, I have to say this, everybody listening, this is one of those episodes that, and, and again, I don't want to rank episodes or say, you know, make one better than the other, but this is one you might want to just download and bookmark a few things. Because I think um, there, there's things I've bookmarked, the inner fitness, the the how the world sees us, all that good stuff. And, and Brian, you've been amazing. I look forward to connecting with you more, especially on a personal level. Um, Oh, yeah, please. That'll be that'll be great. You take care of yourself and thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Mark, thanks so much for having me on. It's been great having this conversation. I I love a great conversation and you are a fabulous conversationalist. So thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening to the 6AM Run podcast. Again, I am your host, Mark Paisant. Please like and subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of this amazing content. If you can, we would love if you left us a review. Remember to follow us online and use hashtag 6AM Run to connect with the greatest group of runners and fitness enthusiasts in the world.